0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Robert Elliott, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Perin Gödel about her new book, The Limits of Westernization, a Cultural History of America and Turkey. Hi, Dr. Gödel. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Perin, I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself
1: Sure. I was born in Istanbul, Turkey, in 1981. Very specific. February 1981. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's during, that was during mili- military rule, actually, following the 1980 coup, which, as your listeners probably know, realigned Turkish society in pretty significant ways. So I grew up during a time that I explore in the later chapters of the book, a time of rising American influence on Turkish politics, economy, and culture, under Turgut Özal's government. I also went to an American high school in Turkey, which established my understanding of the United States, this distant empire that somehow seemed so present, and was really beginning to influence the way I built up my own identity as a modern Turkish girl. So after two years at two different Turkish universities as an English major, I transferred to UC Berkeley as an international transfer student. And there I discovered American studies this interdisciplinary field that I ended up getting my PhD in at Yale in 2011. And I'm currently Assistant Professor of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I specialize in transnational American studies with focus on U.S. and the Middle East. So it's pretty cool to be on a New Books uh, in the Middle East podcast.
0: Hey, well, we're, we're very ha- <laughs> glad to have you on. So how did you come upon this, spe- specific, excuse me, <laughs> this <laughs> specific topic? Did this have to do with your upbringing or was there something um, else that led to your interest in this?
1: Yeah, I think, um, as I said, growing up in Turkey in the 1980s and 1990s had a lot to do with it. Um, As I noted, America loomed very large in our everyday life, specifically regarding discussions around westernization or Bata And we also learned about the United States in school in our history classes, specifically about this thing called the American Mandate, American Mandate, which was a part of the discussion about the reordering of the world after World War One. where our teacher told us that Turkey was maybe almost going to be a U.S. colony, but then we fought back, etc. Um, so then I came to the United States, and I decided to study American history and culture. And I thought, this is it. I will finally find out what... But what Telushka is all about: Westernization, and what this mandate question is, um, and of course, none of that was on offer at all. It wasn't even on the radar for American historians, historians of U.S. foreign policy, even. So I thought, wow, what is going on? How is it that the things that I thought most defined the United States are not a part of the conversation of American studies? And at the same time, um, there's this new subfield called transnational American studies examining the world in the United States and the U.S. and the world was on the rise. And there were increasing calls for a type of American studies that seriously engages with non-U.S. representations of the United States and Americanness. So I thought I might have a role to play here. And every class I took in graduate school, I tried to write something about how debates over westernization in other parts of the world And um, their writing of history can help us understand the U.S. and the world. And that's how the project was born. I really wanted to look at these different representations and why parts of these narratives were missing from official American history and American studies.
0: And on this topic of Westernization, you introduced this term, wild Westernization. Can you tell us a bit about what you mean by this?
1: Sure. I think the best way to think about wild westernization for me and the need to kind of conceptualize or offer a new term um, was to contrast it with the two terms that actually do exist in the literature. A lot of the is interdisciplinary builds on different Turkish engagements with the question of Westernization. So the terms that do exist, uh, the first one is what scholars have called authoritarian modernization or what we might think of as selective or authoritarian Westernization, which is a state and elite directed project of social engineering, which is really most closely associated with the Kemalist government of the early 20th century, where you incorporate different uh, political Practices, different ways of press, different modes of um, being, even different ways of sort of sitting on a chair into the country to selectively modernize it, to bring it in line with what Azerbaijan called contemporary civilization. So that's selective westernization or authoritarian modernization. So we have a huge scholarship around that, especially in history. And then we have a huge scholarship on the literature side on so-called over-westernization, sometimes called super-westernization or westoxication, which is, again, this look from top down, worrying about the degenerating influence of westernization measures and attempting to control it. So while um, both of these things are going on, I Uh, wanted to talk about the other thing that's going on, which is what we might think of as vernacular transculturation with the West. So wild westernization for me is a term for the types of cultural contact and influence with the West that were not foreseen by Turkish leaders who set out to properly modernize or strategically westernize the country and its peoples in the early 20th century. So it is my term for the mess of what happens when cultures interact and intersect and transform across power hierarchies and specifically about the types of vernacular transculturation with the United States that followed on the hills of World War II. This wide-scale wide, transculturation of Western, specifically American cultural exports, with the local vernacular. So For me, wild westernization, as you can tell from the name, is this vernacular cultural reality that cannot be controlled by policymakers in Turkey or the United States. It's a hybridization process with effects that are sometimes vulgar, sometimes sort of resigned to capitalism, sometimes defined of authority, but ultimately unpredictable. And some of the processes that I label as wild westernization or Uh, vernacular transculturation have been critiqued as wrong or over-Westernization by Turkish authors, so wrong-Westernization or over-Westernization to use the Turkish terms. And I wanted to reject the moralizing inherent in those designations while also showing the broader reality and politics of cultural transformation. And of course, it puns with the Wild West and a big part. Of um, wild Westernization that I influence uh, that I explore in the book is how these ideas about w- the Wild West also begin to influence Turkish cultural production.
0: I really, actually, I really enjoyed that part of the book. Um, you have a wonderful hook regarding oh, yeah. these kind of <laughs> forms of cultural production and. Uh, I was I I was reading the book and i I started giggling like a madman. <laughs> That's so I was, great like, going I'm through so the first glad. few pages. Oh yeah. Was...
1: Um, the language can be strong. <laughs> but I owe so much to that concept of wild westernization. I really owe it to my love of Turkish popular culture, especially Turkish humor, Turkish comedy. Um, these I, I think these sort of popular thinkers worked it out and worked out what it meant to try to draw the limits of Westernization and to fail and how sort of ridiculous that endeavor is. Um, So I, I thank you for pointing. I do think the book ended up being kind of funny because of that focus and specifically that comedy scene that I opened with the Yashibutu movie, which I recommend to all listeners. Um, It's a really great um, humor, piece of humor that engages with the idea of America through the Ottoman Empire in an interesting way.
0: And um, on a slightly different note, in chapter one, you speak a lot about the Edip and the Wilsonian Principles League. Can you tell us a little bit about the Edip, who she is and how she fits within this narrative?
1: Sure. Um, um, she's a very significant player in this question, really the debates about westernization, but specifically this question that comes up right after World War One, which is the question of a U.S. mandate over Turkey. This is was a big part of our history books in Turkey that Completely wasn't on the radar, as I said, in the United States. But, um, she's a very highly educated woman, uh, an accomplished author from an elite background. And right after World War One, as the Ottoman Empire is kind of lost the war and um, you don't know what the future holds, she founds this organization called the Wilsonian Principles League that initially argues for sovereignty under. Wilsonian principles and after the setup of the mandate system she begins to lobby for a u.s mandate over the remainders of the ottoman empire so she and like-minded intellectuals believe that the united states at this time would be a really good guide for um the Ottoman Empire towards modernity and that the United States doesn't have these imperialistic designs on the Middle East, on their lands, on like Europe, really every major power. So they think it would be good to get become sort of like an American protectorate until they can kind of stand up on their own. Um, Woodrow Wilson is not a fan of this idea. She, He's not a fan of Turks that really doesn't want to have it, anything to do with Turks. And she's also kept on the sidelines by Mustafa Kemal who kind of humors her letters um, but really doesn't push, um, push too much this angle. And she actually within a year ends up joining the nationalist resistance. So she becomes an important part of that nationalist struggle. So um, as I said, the question of the mandate is huge in Turkish nationalist rhetoric and history, and it plays an oversized role in this since she eventually gets cast as this over-Westernized traitor, this woman in bed with the West, first by Mustafa Kemal, who uh, gives a speech in Turkish parliament called NUTUK, um, basically um, claiming um, that a lot of these intellectuals who were a part of the nationalist resistance were actually in line with the West and don't be a don't need to be part of the Republic. Uh, so he establishes this depiction of Halideb as a questionable sort of over-Westernized traitor. And then of course, much of national history is based on Nutsuk, so it repeats, it, it repeats the story. So gender is a huge part of how these debates over Westernization uh, emerged. So the chapter tells the story of the question of the mandate, what happened? And the competing Turkish and U.S. nationalist histories through her figure, through the figure of Khali Dedeb. And I also talk about how representations of Khali Dedeb changed in the early 20th century. She's a sort of venerable figure, really by the 1970s as anti-Americanism is on the rise. Um, her statue is bombed because she is seen as an example of some some intellectual elite intellectual who argues for u s imperialism over Turkey, so it's all about these debates around her figure and a part of it was published in American Quarterly in case any of your readers want to check it out
0: yeah i I hope they do Holda she's really a interesting and and complicated. Figure and, and I, 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 I've always found it interesting the various styles of critiques that mm-hmm. have been leveled against her based on gender, religion, yes,
1: um, mm-hmm. which
0: I, I, I forgot who it was, but um, I think you mentioned in the book that people kind of lambast her because her characters um, tend <laughs> yeah. to fall for like <laughs> Europeans, and <laughs> when I, I I just read Sinekli Bakal the other week, and Peregrini converts to Islam. Okay, so yeah. I mean. Like, he's, he's playing ball, so...
1: I, <laughs> so I, it doesn't I count. Yeah, she actually converts her him. Um, I mean, it's just this amazing book. Um, so normally, it's really amazing because she also wrote these nationalist novels that get assigned in Turkish literature classes. So you have... Turkish literature classes that are saying, read this woman's novels to become better Turks. And then you have Turkish history classes that are saying, this woman was terrible and, like, was a terrible Turk. (laughs) You know, not in the sense that Wilson understood the terrible Turk, but was just really Westernized and, you know. Um, And then you have stuff like this, this um, author who basically says, no, even when you look at these literary classics, you see that she's in love with the West and doesn't, you know. (laughs) So... It, it It is these multiple levels of critique, and she is such a fascinating figure. I I agree with you. <laughs>
0: right. uh, so literature and, and popular culture play a pretty strong role uh, in, in this text. And in chapter two, you look at a wide array of literature from the late Ottoman period onwards. So how do these novels depict the dangers of over-Westernization? And what sort of archetypes and tropes do we see?
1: So. The book, as you say, kind of follows this rhetorical line from official to less official, from uh, expressly political to stuff that is seen as less political, so that I place the novel between the official and the vernacular because it played such a political role. And just as in chapter one, I build on the work of Turkish historians in chapter two, I build on the work of amazing Turkish literary scholars, such as Berna Moran, Parla, Sibel Özek, who have offered readings of the Turkish novel as a space where gendered anxieties about Westernizations played out. Um, not much of that work focuses on Europe. So I wanted to see how these worries about over Westernization, which I really developed in the late Ottoman period, as you know, in the high age of European imperialism transformed once the United States entered the game at the turn of the century and really began to dominate it by the middle of the 20th century. So a lot of figures shift. So in the late Ottoman era, we already begin to see a shift in the dynamics and register of Westernization from comical, like with the figure of the dandy who is in love with Europe and he's kind of a humorous figure, a failure. Um, so you transition from the late 19th century to the early 20th century from this comical figure of the dandy to the tragic figure of the West, toxicated, falling young women. Um, uh, which uh, of course, that corresponds with the empire's literal invasion by sort of the beloved uh, West. But, um, we also watch America, the United States kind of enter into the Turkish novel during this time, initially as the lesser of two evils. So you have Europeans uh, and then you have Americans who are also problematic but not as bad as the Europeans in the 1920s, 1930s. So for example, in Karos Manolo's famous novel Sodom and Gomorrah, sort of Europeanness is associated with rape and sodomy and Americanness is associated with the sort of light lesbianism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, generous sexuality play a huge role in how these limits are getting drawn and how n- nations and their power are getting figured. But um so um initially America is like kind of the lesser of two evils, which is also the language used in calling for a mandate in the early 20th century. But eventually it develops into the sort of most dangerous source of West to- West toxification um, as the century progresses in the 60s and on. Um, towards the end of the century, we also begin to have novels which refuse to enforce the boundaries of Westernization. One of the novels that I look at is Orhan Pamuk's New Life, um, which kind of complicates these ideas about strategic Westernization, over-Westernization, etc., and just kind of is a mess, represents wild Westernization, really, in a really um, apt way. But it's ironic, then, that Orhan Komuk himself gets cast as an over-Westernized traitor, again, through this sort of gendered class and uh, language that also relates to religion, kind of like he's also seen as a crypto Jew. So the novel initially gets recruited into this project of establishing the limits of Westernization, figuratively drawing them via gender and class, but exceeds these goals. And it also begins to operate as a forum to challenge the state's allegorical impulse and the very attempt to draw these boundaries and becomes a beautiful archive, I think, of vernacular transculturation. But um, this is not a progress narrative. I made it sound like one. But even as some novelists are doing this sort of complicating in the early 21st century, we then at the same time have the rise of the alternationalist novels like Metal Fertina, The Metal Storm, that continues to be very much invested in drawing the limits of westernization over gender and sexuality.
0: So, in chapter three, you explore something that you called Turklish. Can you explain to our listeners a bit about what you mean by this and how this type of language is used?
1: Sure. Um, so, Turklish is just my translation of Turkilizje. A lot of these terms are my attempts to translate vernacular Turkish term. So this is one example of that. Turki um is the term that begins to be used in the late 60s, late 70s. It's basically about mixtures of Turkish and English that manifest in everyday speech. Um, and they can be used in a variety of ways, advertising, humor, protests in protest slog- slogans. Um, but what I focus in on this chapter is how it's used to create humor so, I think maybe I can best explain it with a joke from my childhood. Um, and the joke that was told in these sort of primary schools uh, when I was growing up in the 1990s is what city in Turkey has the most automobiles? <laughs> Did you, do you know which one? Cars. Cars, yes. <laughs> <And> so, that, <laughs> that is the joke. I think so. It, it's obviously a pun, right? On cars, the city, and cars you know, automobiles. Um, and so this this is basically a pun and it also kind of talks about, it has ideas about modernization, right? Karst is not seen as like the most modern city. You would think it would be Istanbul, but it turns out to be Karst. So there are multiple layers to these basic, um, basic um, Turkish tur- turklish texts. So, and this is a very small pun, but there are many varieties of turklish and I er- reproduced, Reproduce even this long epic romance that builds on direct translations of Turkish proverbial expressions, like sort of false translations of Proverbs um, tells this extensive story about these star crossed lovers that replicates kind of yeshiltram movies, classical um, Turkish movies. So this chapter actually was the first extensive study that I could find that I had to produce of Turkish humor um, but, of course, I was studying it again with an eye to how these texts reflect wild westernization or vernacular transculturation with the United States and how Turklish might also be used in an oppositional manner as well uh, to critique selective westernization, but even to kind of talk back to empire, to talk back to the United States.
0: And in chapter four, um, you discuss uh, transvesti people. Um, Can you explain to our listeners who these people are and how the discourse regarding them and gay people relate to over and under Westernization?
1: So this chapter was very difficult to write, partially because of these terms. Um, And as with the other chapters, I foregrounded popular understandings of categorizations. That, of course, differ from the many ways people identify or don't identify in terms of gender identity and sexual object choice. But what I'm doing in this chapter is basically I wanted to look at the civilizational discourses that were forming around male sexual identities or figures in the 1990s and early 2000s. So, again, to explain sort of travesti identity, I have to talk about these two other Identities around which there's extensive civilizational discourse during this period. So you have gay identity, sometimes written with an e in the middle, sometimes with an a. Um, this is this identity that's associated with the West or Westernization, with upper class status, sometimes with over Westernization. Then you have travesti identity, which is again the public term, a popular term, which is imposed on and sometimes adopted by people who are assigned male at, at at birth um, and may wear feminine attire and are engaged in sex work. So it's like, um, it's basically a job description of sorts and doesn't really tell us too much about really how those people identify, but these are people who are assigned male at, at birth and work as sex workers um, and mar- some, some type of sort of transition to femininity, either in attire or in other ways. It's, it's a category that really doesn't map onto our contemporary understandings. Uh, it's a very class category. Then you have this concept of the active male partner, which is a, really a non-identity, but it's used to refer to the supposedly working class partners of gay men and state So the point of looking at these identities was that you could see how some of these debates around the limits of Westernization were taking place on the ground in the Um, What what types of sexualities people were saying were appropriate, were properly Western or properly Turkish, and which ones were being seen as over-Westernized or really inadequately modern. So at this time, you have really enlightened journalists and some gay activists. Um, accusing travesti and active men of being inadequately modern, that this there's this sort of teleological narrative that like, as we modernize, all of these identities are going to fall by the wayside and everyone's going to be gay. And it's going to be great. Um, and at the same time, you transition to the first um, era of AKP rule, uh, sort of this era of moderate Islam, where the uh, AKP is leading the efforts to enter the European Union. So you have the state beginning to think about how it can use some modicum of acceptance of gay identities and sort of gay and lesbian visibility to further support its attempt to enter the European Union and to prove its moderate sort of tolerance status. Again, this is under early occupant rule where a lot of these sort of LGBTQ clubs even get official state recognition. And even as the state is doing that, it works to evict evict travesty out of its modern cities, right? So it is kind of buying into this discourse that these people are beyond the pale of proper westernization. At the same time, um, you have debates within the LGBTQ community about the role of the West, Westernization, getting funds from the West. Um, And so they're having debates around these identities and also about the politics. And a part of the research for this was built on interviews that I did uh, with um, LGBTQ activists. So ultimately the chapter demonstrates that how just as debates over the limits of Westernization were drawn in gendered and sexualized terms with those figurations, gendered and sexual identities in Turkey have been interpreted along an axis of Westernization. Um, So it was kind of looking at the other side of it, how much these these, um, debates are gendered and sexualized and how much ideas about gender and sexuality are informed by ideas about Westernization.
0: So now that this book has been out for a little while, have your thoughts on any of these topics started to change?
1: Um, so the book is been out for a while it's also coming out in paperback this spring um, with Columbia University Press so I wanted to announce that Um, you know I recently wrote a blog post called Turkey White Supremacy and the Clash of Civilizations in response to some of the sort of um, the Christchurch shooting and that the shooters the terrorists the obsession with Ottoman Empire and Istanbul and attempts to draw like different civilizations and kick Turkey out of Europe or not let Tur- you know kick literally the part of Turkey that is in the continent of Europe out. Um, so I don't want to foreground this guy's sort of delusions, but um, it was amazing to me how much of this initial drive for the book um, was for me was to counter simplistic ways of approaching culture. And politics, simplistic understandings of culture and politics and understandings of the West and non-West, how much of those remain relevant and how much of those have sort of found their assault weapons in the Internet age? So I think there's still a lot of work to be done around those understandings that the book does speak to. However, I also think many things have changed First and foremost, um, although ideas about modernists remain incredibly relevant to -to day-to-day Turkish politics and construction of identities, and Turkey continues to have this love-hate relationship with the United States, I think the word Westernization itself has practically disappeared. I don't think it has the same traction, the same heat that it used to have in the 20th century. Um, So it has disappeared, I think, both as a positive term something we should aspire towards, but also as a a negative term in some ways, uh, we're using new terminology. So I'm glad that the book was able to track a significant part of the history of that concept and to highlight the debates over it. And a lot of those debates themselves, I believe are raging, but somehow the term is missing. And I wish someone would write a whole other book on the terms loss of traction, And what terms people are using right now and why in the sort of second era of Akepe rule.
0: And um, so now that this this book is complete, um, do you have any advice that you would give for a new scholar who's either working on their dissertation or who's doing the first book project?
1: So the advice depends so much on the field, but... um, I guess the first thing to say is that it's important to mark where you are in your field, where you enter the conversation from, what are the fields that you're in conversation with, what are your key terms, what key debates are you responding to and how you want to further that conversation. Um, that is really important in sort of contributing to the debates and um, also being able to organize a whole book around the debates. Um, I also think it's probably the, a good idea to think in terms of chapters and how the chapters work together to construct a story or a narrative that is going to motivate the reader to read further. Sometimes if it's history, it's a little easier to see that narrative than if it's literature, for example, a literary study. Um, But it helps to think again in terms of sort of what's changing, what threads are shifting from chapter to chapter. And then finally, if you can put fart jokes into your book, like I have, (laughs) don't shy away from that, please, by all means, Um, put fart jokes into your book. Um, I have a whole, and I I was, one of my proud moments was (laughs) in the index where flatulence has (laughs) um, has this place, um, multiple references to flatulence um, in that chapter on turklish, on turklish humor, um, so it's one of my problems. So have fun. I guess that's kind of the have fun. And, um, you know, don't be afraid to be ridiculous in some ways and be funny. But I don't know, maybe listen to your advisor. <laughs> maybe yeah, not too oh many fart God. jokes. Uh, consult no, no, your advisor it was, it was, about it was... the percentage of fart jokes that are allowable in your book. <laughs>
0: I don't, I don't think there is, there should be a limit, but, no. it, but yeah, no, the, uh, you had a, you had a few good Nasruddin Hoja ones yes. and, uh, I, I forgot what the line, the line is, but there's a, a golden line somewhere in that chapter about Nasruddin Hoja. And I really urge all of the listeners to to get the book just so that they can read <laughs> that chapter and try to find this. Cause I'm, I'm listening to it. I'm, I'm read I'm reading it and I'm just giggling to myself and I'm thinking I have to remember this and I have to tell my friends about this later. They're going to they're going to they're going to love this.
1: Is it the where where he's at the um there? He's at an Arab sheikh's house and he's eating food. Is that the one or other something else where he farts? <laughs> I'm not going to reveal the joke by the book. <laughs> Is that the
0: one? No, it's you frame it something about something to do with flatulence and resistance or, or something like something like that. Yeah. And just the, we'll, leave a, it,
1: yeah. we'll leave it that way Buy the book. Uh, if you want to yeah, follow the yeah. thread of flatulence and resistance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that could inspire someone's dissertation topic there. You're trying to figure out what they want to do. And, and go, if that is your
1: book, I will systems. buy it. You're, you know, I, I want to once I get tenure. This is exclusive to this podcast, Um, and I don't want anyone to steal this idea, but I am going to write a book called The Bidet, A Civilizational History. So I'm trademarking it right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It will be, I will take this of thing further towards um, excretion and methods of cleaning up excretion. This now, the podcast is going to ish, so I'll stop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so on, on, on the topic of that, um, as is the traditional final question on New Books and Middle Eastern Studies podcast, what are you working on right now?
1: Okay, I do want to work on the Bidet book, but it's not, I'm not working on it right now because I don't have tenure. Um, but my um, second book project does emerge out of this book. Um, so in this book, I um, was responding to this call, as I said, by American Studies folks uh, uh, to talk about how people outside the United States have talked back, uh, have responded to dominant negative stereotypes, and have anticipated, contested, modified these representations. So the book, the Limits of Westernization, was about putting Orientalism in conversation with Occidentalism or Westernization. And for my second book project, I wanted to investigate the nationalist limits of those counter-hegemonic responses. So I'm specifically looking at the influence of U.S.-led political discourses and associated mass media representations on Turkey-Iran relations from the Cold War to the war on terror. The book is titled, the second book is titled America's Wife, America's Concubine, Turkey-Iran and the Bounds of Middle Eastern Solidarity. Um, that title comes from the Shah of Iran, Muhammad Reza Shah, the last Shah, who once complained to Kennedy that America treats Turkey as a wife and Iran as a concubine. So I'm taking those uh, figure, that figured language, the gendered language, very seriously. And specifically, I'm looking at comparatism as a mode of knowledge generation and political strategy. So I'm examining which political actors have mobilized comparative representations of Turkey and Iran and under what terms, how did comparatism operate in rhetorically connecting the two countries, but also maybe limiting the possibilities of solidarity against imperialism. And I'm also investigating the role US hegemony played in these projections.
0: That sounds like a really great project, and I'm hoping that once that's out, we can have you back on the podcast, and uh, we can have another conversation about that one.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Well, Pelin, or Perin, we've, sorry, we've, <laughs> we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, I I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I had a great time.
0: And again, um, the book is The Limits of Westernization, A Cultural History of America and Turkey by Perin Gurel.